This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey, everybody, I have an announcement. My new book, Traumatized, is available for pre-order now. In it, I cover PTSD and complex PTSD, the symptoms we can experience when we have been traumatized, and of course, ways we can overcome these and heal. There is honestly too much helpful information in this book to list it all, but if you've ever wondered if you've been traumatized or are working to overcome past trauma, this book is for you. I cannot wait for it to be out in the world and help anyone suffering, so please pre-order yours today at katiemorton.com. You can ask her why breakups suck or why you've hit a plateau. Inquire all those questions you've always wanted to know. Ask Katie anything. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Ask Katie Anything. Um, So I pull all your questions. If you're new, welcome. Howdy do. My name is Katie Morton. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist. Um, I've been creating mental health content on YouTube for like eight and a half years. Hence my sweatshirt, I guess. Rep- Got to represent. Um, anyways, I get your questions, if you don't know, from the Opinions That Don't Matter YouTube page. If you are listening to this, you're going to have to get onto YouTube and go onto that page. And it's in the community tab. So when you go to the homepage, you can scroll across. It's like videos about all that stuff. It says community. Click on community. It's in there. And I usually ask you on Mondays. Um, and I, I know a lot of you are like, I keep refreshing. When are you asking? Um, I do my best to do it on Mondays. And I, I wish I could give you like a specific time, but my life is just not that structured. <laughs> so Mondays, I'll do my best. Um, anyways, so I have, uh, how many questions do we have today? We have 11. Are you ready? And I did go through because I know last time I talked about and it still is like this where it doesn't put the the comment with the most thumbs ups. Excuse me. Sorry, my nose is itchy. Um, It doesn't put that comment at the top. It like, I don't know what the order is. It doesn't. There's no rhyme or reason. Um, Anyways, I scrolled and scrolled and scrolled to try to make sure that I got all of the ones with the most thumbs ups. Um, So I apologize if I missed yours, but hopefully yours is in here. Okay. Um, so let is, let's get into this. It says the first question, our dearest Katie. Oh, I wonder if therapists ever get desensitized to sad stories and get less empathic after listening to so many of them from clients. Also, does listening to so many sad stories affect your worldview and beliefs about human beings? And this is all the way from Hong Kong. Wow. Yay. Um, this is a great question. And the truth about it's not so simple. It's not like we don't get desensitized because we kind of do. It doesn't really affect my empathy though, but it, but the shock value is just not there. Like even just the other day, Sean and I were watching, um, there's this new Netflix series, Unsolved Mysteries. It's not new. It's an old like reboot because if you guys, I don't know if you're like me, I used to love Unsolved Mysteries and I watch it like back in like the eighties and nineties, I think. Um, anyway, now it's like a new version of it. And and we watched another one like Cold Case Files, um, both on Netflix. Great shows. Highly recommend. But Sean is like, he gets really overwhelmed with it. 
he'll he'll say things like, I can't believe someone would do that. People are so terrible. He like takes it's it's too much for him. Like, I don't even know if we'll go back and watch anymore. I loved them, but he was like, mm. so meanwhile, he can watch like, I don't know, crazy action films with a lot of violence that I just can't tolerate. But to each their own. Anyways, long story short, it it's those instances when I realize that, no, I, I hear a lot of bad things all the time. And so I know that those people exist in the world. Um, and so in a way, I'm not as sensitive like as Sean is to it. He's like, oh, this is like horrible. Who would do that to, you know, a child or a person or, you know, whatever. And so in some ways, I'm not shocked by anything anymore because I know there's bad in the world. But the thing that... um the thing that I really think is important, though, is that it doesn't make me think the world is bad. I feel like I, my goal is to like give hope to people who need it to help them heal, to help them understand what's happening or how they're feeling or you know how to move from here. Um, it doesn't make me think that the whole world's bad because I know it's not. You know, I have plenty of parents um, who come in in support of their children. Um, I have plenty of spouses who do all they can. I have plenty of friends who've helped. You know. I know that there's good, not to mention our whole online community is just filled with people who want to help one another. And I think that's a really beautiful thing. And so I guess because of the good that comes along with the bad, I know that there's both out there and I know that the bad in no way outweighs the good. Um, but I am desensitized. Does that make sense? It's, it's like, it's not that I don't feel for my patients. It just doesn't like nothing shocks me anymore. That's kind of how I feel. Um, which in a way has been super beneficial as I've gotten more experience working with clients. Um, I feel like I've gotten better and better at hearing them share a story and not reacting in any way, even if it's just my eyes. You know, you have to be so cautious as a therapist to not physically show any uh, judgment, upset or anything. You need to kind of remain as much as you can, like a blank slate for them. And then, you know, ask them about their own experience and validate that so that I'm not I don't want to make them assume that they have to feel a certain way about something. I want them to give me their authentic response. And then I want to help them understand that and validate that and dig into that. That's really the work that you do. Um, and so as I've gotten, you know, quote unquote, desensitized, I'm better at doing that. And so I think in a way, even though desensitized gets kind of a bad rep and means like, oh, you just don't feel it anymore. I think when it comes to being a therapist, it actually can make us more effective because I don't have to fight against my own human response as much because i heard it all i've seen it all and that's why i'm always telling you like i know that so often any kind of upset or thing that we've gone through in our life we we think to ourselves no one will understand how i feel i'm the only person in this situation i'm the only person that could feel this way i don't even know why i feel this way it doesn't make any sense you know we do all these crazy we have these horribly invalidating and crazy conversations with ourselves come to find out you're not alone it's not wild that you know the you can tell somebody and you know they are not going to freak out and i think therapy is like that safe space for that and so anyway i'm i'm rambling but long story short is it's my goal to make that safe space for my patients and my viewers alike right i want you to know that it's okay to ask those questions it's okay to tell someone something even if you're worried they're going to freak out or think you're crazy you're not and trust me we've heard all sorts of things similar um like i hear from a lot of you over the years that whatever happened to you, you're worried is like way too ridiculous or crazy, or maybe you're making it up, or it's something you like enjoy, whether it's like a kink, a sexual kink, or um, something that you feel like, you know, skin picking or something that you're doing as a way to cope. Um, we think that all oh, that's very strange. I'm just, I'm just here to tell you it's not. It's okay to talk about it. Um, 
and I know I'm off topic because it's more about desensitization, but I, I just say that, yes, we've heard it all. And it doesn't mean I'm not empathic. It just means that the shock value is gone. Okay. Thank you all the way from Hong Kong. That was exciting, you guys. Isn't it cool? We're worldwide. Or Sean and I always joke, Mr. Worldwide. Um, if you guys don't know, what's his name? Uh, Pitbull always says that. He's Mr. Worldwide. I don't know why we joke about that, but we do. Um, okay. Question number two. It says, hi, Katie. I've learned, uh, or I've heard, sorry, pardon. I've heard you talk about how important it is to set a treatment plan in therapy. Can you give some examples of a treatment plan that you set with clients and how you went about it and how long it took? These are great questions. Um, And I do talk about treatment plans a lot. And it's funny because over the years, I've gotten some comments in those videos from other clinicians who are like, how dare you make people assume that there's supposed to be a plan with treatment? The patient should guide the treatment. And I'm like, did you even listen to what I said? And also, what are you charging people for if you're not actually working towards their goals? So zip it, person. Um, Anyway. And to each their own, I guess, if you don't want any structure in your sessions and you don't want to work towards goals, I just don't think that's therapy. So never mind. Anyway, treatment plans are very loose with some patients, if um, especially if we're doing a lot of mood tracking or they have like specific goals in mind. Like I've had a few patients come in over the years who like it's short term. They needed to get over their testing anxiety because, you know, they have the SAT coming up or they have a big project at work that they're working on. They're starting to feel overwhelmed or um, even other things like I need to get through this divorce or my parents are going through a divorce. You know, we can have these like stressful situations that we're in and we need support and assistance until we get out of them. So one of the main goals is survive the, you know, the divorce or uh, successfully do the presentation at work or take a test or something like that. Um, and so those are kind of easier. Oh, there's cooties on our table because <laughs> we had everything bagels this morning. Excuse me. Okay. So, um, Depending on the person, some of them are very structured and some are not. Okay, so I don't want you to think that these have to all be very structured, but I'll start with the most structured and we'll we'll lo- go lower from there, if that makes sense, like less structured. So the most structured treatment plan starts off with like um, what we, I always start with my patients, like what are your long-term goals? Like if I if we were to flash forward a year, five years, 10 years, what are you hoping for your life? I know that sounds very broad and some people are like, I don't even know, especially if we're hopeless. Um, even just working on a treatment plan with a patient can tell me a lot about where they're at. So I'll start off with some kind of question about that. See how far out I can go with them um, and what their bigger goals are. And those things could be like, um, I want to graduate from college. I want to get a promotion at work and I want to own a home or I want to have better relationships and better communication with my daughter or my sister or my brother or my, you know, my husband or boyfriend or whoever, it doesn't matter, whatever. Um, there's little goals that we can have, right? Um, if I flash forward in a year, I hope that uh, that I'm feeling better most days and I'm, I'm able to, to touch my toes and, um, and I'd like to improve my relationship with, uh, with my mom. Okay, a lot of people have, you know, just think about it. What would be your goals? Then I work backwards from that. So I start out far. So I start back out with like at least a year. If we can do five and 10, it just gives me some idea of like some of the main goals that we're working towards. And then I, as a therapist, start asking more questions. So let's say one of our main goals is to improve our relationship with our mother. Then I'll say, you know, um, so tell me a little bit about your mom and your relationship. Like, what's that look like? And, And through probably the first 
three to four sessions, the treatment plan will be put together. So to tell you how long it takes, everybody's going to be different if we don't share very much with our therapist and it takes us a little while to open up and be honest. Um, it might not get completed right away. Also know that treatment plans are living documents. Like if I learn more information, I'll be like, do you think we should create a goal for that? Do you want to add that into the plan? You know, yes is usually the answer. Sometimes no. Um, anyway, I work backwards from that into smaller goals. So let's say we want to make more friends. And in five years, we hope to have like a group of friends we get together with once a week and play cards or something. So back, I'd move into like, a year from now or six months from now, we'd like to have one good friend, one new friend maybe that we've made. And then a year from now, we hope that they're a better friend and we're closer with them. Maybe there's one new friend into the, you know, you see how we can build up. And so the the day-to-day homework that would then be more about socialization. Like, hey, have you done any text outreach to someone recently? Or I mean, now it's because of COVID, like wearing masks and stuff. Usually I'd say like, can you make eye contact with a stranger and smile? You know, we work backwards as as easily as we can, like pushing, challenging you, but not overwhelming you. And everything takes time, right? And then I might have you challenge your thoughts about what people are thinking because social anxiety usually comes along with this worry about like, hey, they're not going to like me. They're going to think I'm weird or something's wrong with me. And so we'll we'll challenge those and you know notice those. And that's really how treatment plans work. So for each goal, we kind of work back into what we're going to work on now and put those smaller daily or weekly goals into place and talk about them. And then it's a lot of conversation between me and a patient about like, what are their goals? What do they like? Would this be homework you could do? Did this help you? If like it's social anxiety, it might be like, hey, here's some tools to help calm you, calm yourself down when you get in social situations. Um, since I know you have that like drive-by birthday party next week, that's like a very easy way for you to test it. Let's see if any of these skills work and then they test it and let me know. And so it's a lot of this back and forth testing, shaping it together until we have all of our like homeworks and to do's not not for the whole treatment of our whole experience with therapy but it's like what are we going to do for the next like month let's say and then as a therapist you continually reassess and did this work or not work but it helps for me to have their long-term goals their shorter term goals and then have some ideas of how to get you there um challenging you along the way so that the homework is structured and uh working with you towards what you're actually wanting to accomplish. I don't want to be trying to give you homework to help you better your relationship with your mom when you're like, hey, she's a toxic piece of garbage. I don't want to see her anymore or talk to her. I'd rather work on grieving that loss. Do you see what I mean? Um, and so we want to make sure we're working together towards the right thing. And along the lines of that, so that's that's the biggest, in my mind, that's the biggest part of a treatment plan. However, back in the day when I worked at a clinic, and even I do a little bit of it within my own private practice, but I don't have to as much, is uh, symptoms as a as a clinician before we talk about your goals. I ask you about symptoms and how you're feeling, what brought you in today. Um, and then I write down those symptoms. I also then write down like possible diagnoses that I'm considering. Like, is it major depressive disorder? Is it maybe bipolar disorder? Is it anxiety? I don't know yet. And then I start like ruling them out. And so tracking those symptoms, asking you about the symptoms, maybe part of the homework then is also having you track that stuff. Um, you know, we use all of that to kind of what we uh, do, what we call differential diagnosis, which is when I look at two different diagnoses and I'm like, oh, they have some symptoms of this, but they also have some symptoms of this. Which one do I feel more fits their scenario and what they're going through? Oh, okay. I think it's this one. And so I make a note in on their treatment plan in their file about that. And so that that's about, and then medication that you're on, I always add that in. These usually uh, for those of you who don't know, if you go in to see a therapist, they usually have some kind of paperwork that you fill out out the gate. 
like I have um, some intake paperwork that I have people fill out. I think it's like six or seven pages. Some of it's just signing, like understanding, you know, that I'm HIPAA compliant and what that means and what your rights are and please cancel within 24 hours and blah, 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 all this stuff. So um, it's, you know, there's a lot of things that go in, into that, but a lot of it is also just your information. Like, have you seen a therapist before? Would you see them for? Are you on medication? Who's your psychiatrist? Who's your regular doctor? Do you have an emergency contact? You know, all that basic stuff. And a lot of that, I and my paperwork have that if, like moves right into what the treatment plan is. So I'm like, if you had any diagnoses in the past, um, do you agree or disagree with them? Um, you know, what are the symptoms that are bothering you today? I have people fill out as much as possible. And then we talk about it in session. And so, yeah, I think that's really it. Treat, so goals and smaller goals leading back to like homework, uh, symptoms, diagnoses, medication. I think that's really it. Yeah. So that's, that's just kind of how those go. And everybody's going to be different. So that'd be the most structured. The, the loosest one, which I almost always do these with my patients, you guys, I'm just putting it out there. I know not every therapist does, and that's fine, but you should have some goals you're working towards, okay? And if you're not working towards any goal, I don't think that's really good, okay? I'm just saying. Um, but the less structured would be not so much about like all of these goals and tracking it back. It might be like, so it sounds to me like, you know, you're struggling with social anxiety and part of what you're hoping to do is just get a better handle on that. You know, if we're not able to put into words like, I don't know where I want to be in a year. I don't know. I get that a lot with especially like people in their early 20s. I don't know why. Um, or people who maybe just went through a divorce. When we have big adjustments in our life, it can be hard for us to think about the future. Or if we have suicidal ideation, right? It can be hard to consider what that would be. Um, and so anyways, we can struggle with that. And then with those patients, I'll just say, hey, um, you know, what are some what are some things, you know, would you like to get a hold of your your food? Are you overeating, undereating? You know, we might just, I might just say it. And if they agree, then I'll just work with it on my own until they're in a place where they can uh, be, be able to be more engaged with it. Does that make sense? And there's no better or worse. It's just sometimes we're not able to give a therapist much information. And so we're just kind of shooting in the dark and we're just doing our best. And so sometimes I'll do it that way. Um, okay. I hope that makes sense. I know these are kind of difficult to understand, but also know that these are living, breathing documents that we change all the time. Like as we meet one goal, I'm going to put another one in place, you know, and work our way out. And are there others? A lot of times we're working towards like three different things at once. And so are we making progress on those? And it can be a great way to check in and make sure that we are actually benefiting from therapy. Okay, that was long winded, but I hope that helps make sense or hope that helps those things make sense. Having a tough time, you guys. Okay, question number three. Says, hi, Katie. Usually after a therapy session, I feel great and much better than when I came in. That's wonderful. I love it. But once in a while, I feel shitty and frustrated after a session because I feel like it could have gone better than it did. Maybe I could have been more focused or in a better mood. I could have shared a bit more or used this important time that they uh, more wisely, etc. Do you have any advice, especially with uh, teletherapy? I'm having an even more difficult time because I don't have a safe space for my sessions, so I'm not comfortable opening up. And it's affecting my progress. I really like this question. It got a lot of thumbs up and a lot of comments below. And I really think that, um, first of all, I want you to know it's okay to have, I just talked about this on a Patreon live stream. It's, it's completely okay and normal and to be expected for us to have these wonderful sessions where we leave feeling great and we just had this huge like epiphany moment, right? Oh, awesome. That's super cool. 
wow, I never thought of that. Like those head, you know, your head explodes kind of feelings. And so it's very normal for us to have those. And then to have a bunch of the others where we're like, uh, you know, I just, it's okay. Or I just didn't feel like we really got anywhere or there's no epiphany, but it is is okay. I I have to get things off my chest, right? We can have those very blah moments. And on the Patreon live stream, someone was saying how, because they're a teacher and uh, they're wanting to go back to school. And one, they had somebody um, come in to talk about or do a live Zoom thing about children grieving and what to expect and how they can support them in that grief. And the woman therapist who came to talk, I think it was a therapist, she, uh, she said that there'll be days where they'll be really, really down and then days where they'll be goofy. And that's just because we can't stay focused on serious stuff all the time. And that goes, that's not just kid related, that's adult related too. We can't be super focused doing all this hard, intense emotional work all the time. There will be days and weeks and times when we just have to relax a little. And and maybe that means that our sessions are not as focused, or maybe we're just having a down day. That's also part of being human, especially during these very trying times. It Our life is just not the same as it was. And all this quote unquote new normal shit is just, it's hard for all of us. So have a little compassion for yourself and know that it's okay to have bad days. And so Anyway, so that I want you just to know that's kind of how therapy works. And then the um, using the time more wisely. I think there's a lot of judgment around or expectation around what we should be accomplishing in therapy. And while, yes, I don't want you to think that you don't have to accomplish things in therapy, because going back to that treatment plan question, we should be working towards goals, you know, get feeling better, doing better, all that stuff. But it's not this like linear A to B to C process, right? It's a process, not perfection. It's this like, Two steps forward, one step back. Oh, maybe we loop back here, up and back up we go, right? We kind of just do this thing. And that's just part of it. So don't think just because you aren't making progress week after week, session after session, coming out feeling great that you're not getting better. Because sometimes, even in those down sessions, we learn more about ourselves and our experience. If we can take that information like, hey, I think this week I didn't do very well in therapy because I was totally checked out. I've been too stressed out. And maybe there's something I can learn from that. Maybe there are some signs and symptoms I can take with me forward so that when I feel that creeping on, I can do more things to cope earlier on so that I don't miss out on therapy. I'm just giving you an example, but I think you kind of get the gist that like the not doing is often just as important as the doing. It tells us stuff, right? Um, And so I would encourage you to, first of all, this person, um, do I have any advice? Yes. Bring this up in therapy. The, the guilt and the, the shitty feeling that you're having that frustration after not having like a good, a quote unquote good session. I would, I, I hypothesize <laughs> that you talk pretty shittily to yourself and there's a ton of judgment because if it's coming out in therapy, that means it's like completely running through our life. I'm just saying, I'm hypothesizing. I think that that is probably what's happening in your life in a bigger way. And that's why it's important to bring this up uh, in your next session. Um, and then as far as that, I also have advice because you said you don't have a safe space for your session. Um, if you are able, I mean, car therapy has been like a go-to for many of my my clients. Um, I don't know if you can put blankets. This sounds silly, but I have another client who does like a little closet therapy, which I know has sounds so silly um, and has all sorts of funny connotations around that. But it's I promise it's just to make a safe space. 
So she puts blankets up everywhere and pillows along the wall and it like deadens the sound and she feels like no one would be able to hear her. And then she turns off the music in her room because she's in her closet and she feels like she's safe. So um, there might be other creative ways that you can create space. Other uh, patients of mine and viewers have said they've gone for walks. Um, I know that can be a little depending on how you know crowded it is where we live. But if you can get outside and that's okay, that could be grateful. You know, it'd be great too. So those are some ways. I really think a safe space right now is important for for sessions and therapy um, because I do think that that can, like you said, it's it's affecting your progress because you're not able to open up. And so we need to find a way to create that for you. Um, because sometimes people are like, oh, if I sit in my car, you know, like I'm in the driveway and they can still hear me drive somewhere, drive for like 20 minutes, pull over, park somewhere, take your session there. Um, whatever helps you feel safe. Or if you want to like hike over to somewhere and then, you know, lay down your blanket and sit and that's where you do your session, do that too. There's a lot of ways. So let's get creative. Share in the comments if you have some other ways to make it a safe space. Um, but yeah, or if you know your family's going to the grocery store at some point, see if you can like somehow coordinate that with your therapy or ask them directly um if they're not too nosy um let them know but anyway i hope that that kind of helps but know that it's very normal what you're feeling and we're all kind of in some form having a tough time right now because of the stress right and teletherapy is different so okay question number four hi katie how can we learn to trust ourselves when our mental condition leaves our ability to get things done unpredictable? And we have often said that we would do things that turned out to be impossible for us. I feel like I can't trust myself because of how unreliable I am. I think this is something that's tricky for a lot of people. And there's, I, there's a couple of things that I want to say about it. Number one is I keep moving the mic in and out because I'm like leaning back and then forward. Sorry, guys. Um, communication. I know that this doesn't always work uh, when it comes to career paths and jobs. We don't always want people to know all our business, but when it comes to everything else, communicate. We have to let people know that we don't know how we're going to feel. We don't know if we'll be able to complete that, especially now you can blame it on the pandemic a little bit more. I 100% give you permission to, to play that card, to say things to the effect of, Hey, I've just been under a lot of stress with with everything that's going on. You know, you don't even have to say exactly if you mean the pandemic. You can just say with everything going on, I'm feeling very overwhelmed and it's been difficult for me to complete everything. So I know I told you I'd have XYZ to you or I'd be able to show up for this, but I I I'm so sorry, but it's it's not going to work right now. Can can I, you know, connect with you next week and we can set a new deadline or whatever. I mean, I'd assume that it's more to do like, I don't, it doesn't sound like work related, but I don't know. But we just have to communicate. We have to let people know. And then when it comes to us feeling like we're unreliable or unpredictable, we're going to have to challenge those thoughts. You knew it was coming. We're going to have to pay attention to those thoughts. Maybe journal about them. J-bomb. Um, I don't know why I, that's not a bomb noise, but I don't have any bomb noises. So that was the um sad i know <laughs> but anyways we're going to challenge those thoughts in journal so write those thoughts down and use those bridge statements you know it's possible that i'm not as unreliable as i think i am it's possible it's my mental illness and maybe i could be open to the idea that me having a mental illness and not having energy doesn't make me unreliable it's possible that i have a skewed perception of this it might just be that I need to give myself more time now. I need to communicate to, you know, 
I'm just pretending, but you know what I'm saying. Like there's a lot of probably nasty conversations that you're having with yourself about this, which only adds to the the struggle with the mental health issues and the judgments and the stigma and all that just negative, negative self-talk. And so pay attention to it. Don't buy into it. Argue back. Um, because I think that, you know, we we often just have these nasty conversations that we believe all those thoughts as fact. And then, you know, we act out of that. And so sometimes it can be like self-fulfilling prophecy in many cases. But the one other thing about this I want to talk about is um, the not being able to trust yourself or um, feeling really unreliable. And, and uh, there, sorry, I'm making, I'm like, uh, there's just a lot to say. And I'm trying to figure out the best way to address it because I really think that communication is number one. But number two, having someone that can we can check in with is helpful also. Like if someone can be a helper or can let us know, like it's not always possible for people, but having a close friend or family member that can check in is key. Or if this is career-based, if our assistant, if we have an assistant in any form, secretary, someone that can, that can help, that can assist us, then we should let them. And that means that we talk to them about this and say, hey, you know, it usually takes me like four days to get these reports done, but can you give me eight? And I might get them done early, which would be awesome, but I don't want to not get them done, you know, if I have a bad, if my mood shifts and I can't get out of bed or something. I mean, you don't have to tell them everything, but we can just tell them, hey, I know it normally takes me X, but I'd like you to offer Y because then I need that extra room. And so there are things that we can do overall, you guys, to kind of put in these buffers so that we don't continue to put ourselves in positions where we feel unreliable. We feel like completing tasks are impossible. Um, you know, having some help, the buddy system really helps. Um, yeah, and communication. And I wish I had a better thing, but also getting treatment, getting support, therapy, potentially medication, group therapy, all of that can help. I know mental illness and our moods can feel really unpredictable, but there are things we can do to make them more predictable because the more we get, the better we get at tracking how we're feeling and our mood, how it shifts throughout each month. Because guy or girl, whoever you are, we all have hormone cycles every month. So, Paying attention to the times of the month where you feel extra tired and the times of the month where you feel extra creative, super motivated. Those are things we can work in too, right? If you have big projects, maybe I want to do those during this time because that's usually when I'm at my best. Pay attention to that shit. Don't wait for it to slap you in the face and then tell you how unreliable you are. We have to start tracking it. Notice when it's going off the rails. I'm not quite feeling very good. I kind of think I need more sleep. Maybe this week is a week where I get more sleep and I do less because that's what my body needs. So I don't push through and end up in a depressive episode. I don't know. I'm just saying those are just things that we can do. So start tracking and pay attention because we don't want to create any more of that evidence to support this nasty thoughts because it's not true. We just have to work with not against ourselves and everyone is different. Don't compare your productivity with someone on the internet. I hate that bullshit. People like saying how you need to learn a language and an instrument or finish that thing you've been working on now that we're in quarantine. I'm sorry. It's a global pandemic. I'm feeling pretty fucking stressed out. I don't know if I'm going to be able to do all that and that's okay. So, okay. I hope that helps. (laughs) Went on a tangent there, but that's just how I feel. Okay. Question number five. Oh, this is the, some of the questions says, Hey Katie, this was a question that got many likes last Monday, but didn't make it to the podcast because of that stupid YouTube, YouTube algorithm that you mentioned. I don't know why it doesn't put them in order of likes. Drive me crazy. Drive me crazy. Um, and it did. And I got it. We're here. It says, 
Katie, is it normal to not feel any connection with my parents after realizing that I suffered from emotional neglect? Once I read that children can learn from a very young age to keep their parents at an emotional distance in order to avoid being hurt or let down. Yep. I started going to therapy and the only thing I feel is anger towards them and it sucks because I feel very ashamed for feeling that way. Also, is emotional neglect some kind of abuse? Yes. Um, or causes any trauma? Uh-huh, 100% it can. I struggle a lot with this. My parents never hit me or anything, but they just, uh, they just fed me and gave me a roof over your head. So nothing extra, right? No emotional support. I hope you're doing great. Thanks for all you do. Saludos from Mexico. Mexico. Hello, hello. Um, this is a great, a great question. And first of all, I'm just going to try to answer this in order and then I'll give maybe like a broader context. So yes, it's completely normal to not feel any connection with your parents once you realize something like this. It doesn't just happen with emotional neglect. It can happen with a lot of things. I've had patients all of a sudden realize that their parent was actually emotionally abusive, which is what this is, by the way. This is emotional abuse. Um, and we often think of abuse as an addition to something, right? They struck me. They hit me. They added that physical, right? Hurt. They emotionally uh, lashed out, right? Called me names, put me down. Or, you know, there was sexual abuse where they, they were doing something to me, right? That's what we often think of when it comes to abuse. But abuse also occurs when there's a neglect component. Imagine, I know this isn't the, the example you're giving, but if they didn't feed you, that's a taking away of something that we need. And we need emotional support just like we need food and a roof over our head. And they didn't give that to you. And that is emotional abuse. So I just want you to hear that. I know, especially with emotional abuse, even if they were shouting at us all the time, so many people have a tough time believing and uh, validating the fact that it was abuse. But I'm here to tell you that it was abuse. If a parent doesn't, isn't there for us when we cry, doesn't support us, doesn't listen to us, ask us how our day was. I know like nobody's perfect. I'm not asking for parents to never mess up because we all know parents mess up. I'm just asking for parents to even just do the bare minimum. Hug your child when they cry. Ask how they got that bump on their knee. Uh, Listen to them when they tell you how worried they are. Tell them things are going to be okay. Assuage their fears and anxieties. Support them, you know, when they go through a breakup or a, a friend is mean to them or they get bullied. We need to be there for our children. Why the fuck people have kids if they don't want to be there? I Sorry, I get really angry when parents are horrible, shitty people. And emotional neglect is like so horrible. And I'm sorry this happened to you. Um, so anyways, just know that it is abuse. And I want you to hear that. Um and so it's normal to not feel connected. And then you can learn, like they said, from a very early age to keep their parents at an emotional distance to avoid being hurt or let down. Yes, people, children who've been emotionally neglected, uh, it kind of goes both ways. We tend to uh, struggle with boundaries because no one's even entered our space. So most commonly what I see, this doesn't mean that there's not the opposite, okay? Most commonly I see people who have uh, experienced a lot of emotional neglect to struggle with any kind of relationship. Because any kind of closeness feels like a threat. I could be let down. I could be hurt. They could say they're going to show up for me and they're not. We already have that, right? We already have that experience. We know that. That's the evidence we have from our life. I'm pulling from my memory. I don't think this is safe. It makes sense. But there is the flip side where I've had um, clients over the years who have like no boundaries. They overshare and overindulge and are overly emotional to try to elicit the response. It's like, um, it's kind of, 
like the Pavlovian dog, if, or I don't know, I guess a rat in a cage would keep hitting the bar, hoping that the food pellet would come out, even though they've never gotten the food pellet. Do you know what I mean? It's like we keep doing the thing, hoping to elicit that response. And we'll do that in other relationships too, because we need that love, attention, affection, compassion. It's a human condition. We all need it, you guys. I need it. You need it. Everybody needs it. There's no shame or judgment around it. Um, and so either way, it, we can still feel like we're not getting our needs met, but but there are these different ways to cope. Some not wanting anybody, some trying anyway to get it, okay? Um, and then, um, okay, says, I also started going to therapy. The only thing I feel is anger towards them. The reason that you feel angry is because you've just realized it's like that movie Inside Out. If you haven't watched it, it's wonderful and you should, but it's when those uh, core memories that uh, Riley, the little girl that you're in her head with her her emotions, she has those core memories and sadness touches them. It's nostalgia. She's sad. She's grieving because they had to move, right? And she had to go away. So all those memories are now kind of tainted with sadness because it's like, oh, I, I wish I was back there, right? This is what's happened when you came to the realization that they were emotionally neglectful and you were emotionally abused as a child. It's like emotional neglect has touched all your memories. And now all you can feel is anger because you're like, how could you treat me this way? How could you say those or how could you not be there for me? And not say those things I needed you to say. Um, and so we can feel very angry because anger is a secondary emotion. It's usually hiding hurt or upset. Not always. Anger has its place. But I'm just saying that that would be my guess is that it's definitely protecting you because what you're really feeling is hurt and you're really feeling let down. And so it's okay to be angry. Anger is an important and healthy emotion to feel because, again, it keeps us safe. It protects us. It has a place, right? It tells us something's going on. Why am I so angry? Maybe because that person was a dirtbag and didn't treat me well. Maybe because I needed some things that didn't give me. And that's like fucked up a lot of shit in my life. Hmm. Right? So it's okay. It has a place and it's okay to feel it. And part of what I would try to work on with your therapist is like accepting the anger and the sadness and the grieving process. It's really hard, but I would talk to your therapist about it. Let them know you're feeling this way. Um, and then it says also is uh, emotional neglect some kind of abuse? Yes. And causes trauma? 100%. Think of the attachment trauma. If we didn't have a parent that was supportive and loving, we don't get that uh, healthy attachment what we call a quote unquote secure attachment. And I have videos about that. I would encourage you to go over to my Katie Morton channel and search Katie Morton attachment and they will come up. Um, I talk about, you know, the main attachment styles. I talk about attachment in therapy and how it can play a role. Cause you might find some things coming up for you in therapy where you either feel really like protective and distance from your therapist or super attached and you don't want them to leave you. Um, and that's important to kind of understand as well as we navigate these waters. Right. Um, but yes, we can have a trauma response because it's it's abuse. Okay. Um, it says, I struggle a lot with this. My parents never hit me or anything. That doesn't have to happen to make it abuse. Um, yeah. And I also have a video that might be helpful too. And it, I think it's just called, uh, is it healing from emotional neglect? I bet if you just look on YouTube, Katie Morton, emotional neglect, it'll come up. Because um, I have videos about it. I know I have like emotionally absent mother video and emotionally absent father videos um i don't really know what those are called i'm sorry sometimes it's hard for me to remember the titles of certain videos but i bet if you search for those on youtube you'll find those and that will give you even more information um to help you on your path but if any of you out there are feeling neglected in any way from your parents whether it's emotional or even you know financial some parents hold over their kids head how much things have costed and how much they've spent and as if that's like 
that's something that you owe as an adult or we don't owe our parents anything. I know I've said that over and over over the years and on this podcast specifically. You don't owe your parents anything. Just because they decided to have a child and took care of you and changed your diaper and fed you. What? What? Send me a bill, right? Every butt wipe charge me 50 cents. I'll pay you back. Fuck that. You decided to have a child and you know what happened? You had to care for a child, which is what goes along with being a goddamn parent. You know what you owe your parent? Absolutely nothing. But you know what you would want to have with a healthy, loving parent? A wonderful relationship full of communication and support and understanding of one another and having them have known you for your whole life. You'd hope that, you know, they'd have compassion and understanding and you would be able to go to them for some sage advice. Well, if, you, if you're just listening, I was just gesturing wildly, like so frustrated. Ah. So anyways, I don't believe in that bullshit of owing parents. Um, you don't owe them anything. Okay. Or to say, like, in the way that Jules sings my song, you don't owe them anything. (laughs) Sounds more fun when you say it that way. Okay, question number six. Hi, Katie. Any suggestions on tackling a therapy session when I'm not even sure what I'm feeling or what is bothering me? I've been in therapy for about eight months, and I started after getting laid off, and I had a clear idea of what was causing my depression and anxiety. Now I have a new job, but I don't feel back to myself. Getting a job wasn't the quote-unquote cure that I thought it would be. Surprise, surprise, right? I've canceled my last few session appointments because I feel like I should be better, and I'm not sure what to say about it. This is so common. It's so easy to attribute uh, what may have been like a few year-long path towards depression or anxiety or or eating disorder or self-injurious behavior, any kind of thing. It's so easy for sometimes for us to like think that, ah, this happened like last week. My boyfriend broke up with me or I got into an argument with my friend. That's the reason I feel like shit. Meanwhile, we just ha- haven't been able to recognize that maybe we've been feeling like shit for a really long time. And so even though that has been resolved, that issue's gone, right? Okay, so financial stability, having a job, um, that's been quote unquote fixed. That doesn't make us feel better because the real reason still exists. And this is where therapy can be super beneficial. And I'm so excited for you, even though I know it's hard work. I don't mean to sound too excited. I just love being a detective. I'm like excited for you to work in therapy and figure out what is causing this because my my actual advice on this is to keep those sessions. Stop canceling. This is okay. We don't always have to know. That's part of that's part of the I don't know. It's like what gets me excited about being a therapist is getting to help discover. I feel like we're on like an adventure. Or we're like, you know, both detectives trying to solve the case. And so we get to work together to figure this out. And so go into therapy and say what you said to me. Say, I know I've been I've been seeing you for a while and I thought that getting a job would make me feel better, but I still feel like shit and I don't know why. And I feel kind of stupid for thinking that it was the job because clearly it's not, but I don't have any idea of what it could be. I guarantee your therapist is going to say, they might already have some ideas, by the way, if they've been seeing you for eight months and this might be their opportunity to say, Hey, have you ever thought about, and I'm totally shooting in the dark. I have no information about this. I'm making this up. But they might say, hey, have you ever thought that that maybe, you know, you've been depressed for a really long time? You know, like you talked about being in school and not feeling like you fit in or your your relationship with your your mom or your sister or your friend or your brother or whomever, or, you know, hasn't been that great or that traumatizing thing that happened. You know, there can be all these examples of things that have happened to us and that last, like the you know, the straw that broke the camel's back, that last thing, losing our job, boom, made it real. 
but that doesn't mean there weren't all these other things built up. Um, and so you don't have to know, bring it into therapy, let your therapist ask some questions. Um, I get excited about this because it's like we get to discover it together. And then I get to ask questions, you know, even if you think they're totally off base, it's like, okay, we've learned something. Okay, that's not, we're not going in that direction. A lot of times I feel like in therapy, because I always talk about the root, it's like I'm tracking down this this vine tree that's like spun together like a, like my grandma used to have this, um, what was it? It wasn't lilac. It's kind of like a lilac, though it smells really good, but it's like a lilac tree of some sort. Wisteria, I think that's what it was. Anyway, it's like this vine tree, and it was beautiful. I loved it. It started climbing into their roof and getting in their house. My papa had to cut it down. I was very sad. But it was a beautiful tree. But I like to think of that when it comes to our symptoms are these beautiful flowers. Probably not beautiful because it fucking sucks, but they're like these vines out on the edge, and I'm just trying to track back. And so one of those vines might not be part of the problem. And as I ask a question, I'm like, have you had anything traumatic happen? You know, I... I inquire about little t's big t's and you're like no i ripped that vine. i'm like that vine's not part of it okay so it's over here and we just kind of track down until we get to the root of the problem um and so yeah i think a lot of people don't don't always have a clear idea of what's causing it and that's not that's okay that's not your responsibility sometimes we do have a clear thing most of the time you guys we don't it's usually a lot of things life happens this is going to sound silly, but life happens every day. It happens to us all the time, right? It's happened to me right now. I'm creating new memories. I'm learning things. I'm talking to you. And all of this is affecting me. And it's an experience I'm going to have that's going to change me for tomorrow. So to think that it's only one instance, the job loss, it could create symptoms of depression, anxiety. Sure, sometimes we can feel really stressed out. But depression, anxiety usually go deeper. It usually comes from something else, right? Even if we have like depression running in our family, we know that we're predisposed to have it. We still have to have some triggering situation or event. And just because it wasn't just that one thing, it's usually a culmination of a lot. That's just what I'm getting at. And so know that how you're feeling is normal. It's okay. Most people don't know what's causing it. They might have a few assumptions like, oh, I think it might be because, um, you know, because I've never been close to anybody or my parents, you know, were we're never really around or I assume it's because of the fact that I work a lot or, you know, there's all these things that we can assume, but we have to dig in. So now's the time to dig in, make those appointments, talk to your therapist, ha- let them ask questions. You get to be detectives together on the case and we'll figure it out. Um, but it's just going to take some deep dive into yourself about like maybe when those first symptoms came about and um, how those symptoms express themselves and why did we think it was related to work? You know, what, what do we tie up? Like how much of our personality or who we think we are is tied up into our career or our job. I don't know. Just a few things. But you'll get there. Don't worry. Okay. Question number seven. Got to get my water. You know. Hydrate. Hydration is important. Question seven says, Hi, Katie. Is it common to feel like becoming aware of understanding and expressing your emotions makes things made things even harder? And to miss the times that you were able to just repress your emotions and get on with life. I feel like I just never get a break. And it's so exhausting. I love this because I was talking on the uh, the Patreon live stream. It was right before I filmed this. That's why it's like in front of mine. But how the actual suppression, people are like, what's in a, you know, feeling your emotions feels overwhelming. And so is it going to, if I let myself feel them, am I going to have like an emotional breakdown? And I was like, it's actually the opposite. It's a suppression of emotions and all this like keeping the plates spinning, right? Keeping everything going. 
I got to feel great. I got to do everything. Oh, put on a happy face. Da, 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 da. We do our dance, right? Um, it's all of that that ends up leading us to have an emotional breakdown because we just can't keep it all together, pretending everything's okay, feeling our emotions, having a down day where we cry, having a day where we get really excited. Maybe we feel let down, getting mad at someone, getting in an argument. Those things happen in its life. And if we allow ourselves to feel it, it passes. But if we try to suppress it, it explodes later. And so I just had to say that because I think sometimes we all need to hear that. Like, I know it seems scary, like it's going to be a tsunami that takes you out, but it's really not. It's more like a, a, a trickling stream, maybe a rushing stream, but it's still a stream and we can manage it. Um, so on to this question. You never get a break and it's exhausting, like having to understand and express your emotions. It is exhausting. Learning something new is exhausting. I always try to think of like if we all went to a training camp, you guys, to become gymnastic, like gym, I almost said gymnastics, but I mean a gymnast. Sorry for any of you out there who are gymnasts and I just almost butchered what you call yourself. Um, so we're going to a training camp. We're going to become gymnasts but I've never done it and I can't even touch my toes and neither can you. And so we're like, oh my God. And that first day is so hard and every day is hard and I'm exhausted and my body's like, what is this? And I don't know this muscle and why does this muscle hurt? And oh my God, right? We're going to feel that. And that is just like therapy. We've never expressed emotions and made the time to acknowledge them, understand them, feel them. So doing all of that is going to be kind of tiresome. It's going to be a lot for us. And so just give yourself a breath. Let yourself. I, I also give my patients, I don't know if your therapist will agree with this and you should talk to them about this, but I give my patients every so often when they're feeling really wiped out, I'll say, I give you a day off. No homework, no thinking about it. Just zone out, do something. As long as it's not unhealthy, there are rules around this. It's like, if you want to zone out and watch Netflix and not leave the couch or your bed for a day, I give you permission. Um, however, the next day is a new day. We shower, we get up, we do more things that are productive and helpful for us. Um, yeah, so you can do some of that, but it's hard work and I know it's exhausting, but the reason I want to talk about it in relation to like becoming a gymnast, if we can't even touch our toes, is that there, there is going to come a point where it's so easy and it's not exhausting anymore. We're just building that new muscle. It's like, I don't really lift weights at all, but let's imagine I'm trying to bench press some poundage that seems not that much at first you know, like say it's a hundred pounds and it's kind of difficult. And at first it's really hard and then I'm sore, but I can do it, but it's hard. But then before you know it, that muscle is stronger and then I can do it more and it's not so hard. I want to put more weight on. And so you're just in that phase where you're feeling like it's really hard and you're sore and you're tired, but that muscle will get stronger and it will get easier. It's like we're building those new ruts in our brain. It's really learning. You're learning how to acknowledge and express your emotions. And it's just hard at first. It's like why everybody always, you know, we talk about why it feels worse at first before it feels better. Um, maybe I need to do redo that video about why it feels worse before it feels better because I feel like I've been talking about that a lot. It's like a theme running through all these questions. But maybe talk to your therapist, see if you can take a day off, a vacation day. I give my patients that sometimes, especially if they've been working really hard. But also know that it will get better. Stick with it. I know it fucking sucks, you guys. I've been there. I've done stuff myself where I have to track my own thoughts because I struggle with feeling okay taking up space and not being in people's way. And I'm on, you know, it's, it just is kind of this like speaking up for myself, people pleasing, being a doormat, all that shit. I've lived it. I know it. I still struggle sometimes. It's hard. Um, and then I get reprimanded in therapy. But 
it does get easier. And I promise you, it seems hard at first and it's exhausting, but then before you know it, you're standing up for yourself. You're speaking up, you're saying things and it's okay. So it gets better. Stick with it. Okay. Question number eight. Hey, Katie, how do we improve teletherapy when working on trauma and dissociation? Great question. I had a similar one on the Patreon live stream. What are some things that therapists can do to ground clients during telehealth sessions? And what are some things that clients can do to stay present? I struggle with dissociation even in the office and telehealth has been a challenge because of this. Thank you so much for your time and knowledge. Be well. I saw a comment under this and I, I didn't co- like copy and paste it. So I'm just running from my memory, but I really liked it. And something that I've talked about a little bit on here is creating a ritual around your telehealth sessions. And you'll see why this comment kind of works into it. But a lot of it is preparing our body like we would for therapy anyways. And um, it's important to like maybe change your clothes or get comfortable. Uh, Maybe you make a, you know, cup of tea or and they said coffee didn't help. Someone had said because the caffeine can make you feel worse. So maybe it's tea or maybe it's just your favorite beverage like um. I don't know, maybe you like a a certain soda or pop. I say pop because I'm from Washington and we say pop. Um, Maybe it's a pop. Maybe it's a a bubbly water, juice. I don't know. Get something. And then you sit in a certain spot. You get your area ready and then you go into the therapy session, right? So we can kind of prepare ourselves in a certain way and have a certain ritual around it um, so that we're ready for it. So that can be helpful. But for a lot of my patients in general, even in session, if they struggle with dissociation, you need to have some tools um, that you can that you can have your therapist kind of uh, do for you. And number one is the best thing, if you can, is try to make eye contact with your therapist. I know when we struggle and want to pull away, it it's like impossible. But I want you to try when you start feeling that urge of like, oh, I'm starting to feel, oh, I want you to think, nope, this is safe. You have to have a mantra. So come up with a couple of mantras and then you want to look your therapist in the eye and say, it's safe here. I'm okay. No one's going to hurt me when I'm here. This is a safe space or whatever. And you just keep repeating your mantras, whatever works for you and try to make as much eye contact as you can. I promise if you can do that for like 30 seconds, a minute, you'll stay present. That's something that can kind of help. But then the comment said making it, they make a cup of tea, they put their weighted blanket on and they do their session. And I thought that was great. Weighted blankets are great. There's also weighted vests that you can purchase. Um, and then another thing I was talking about on the Patreon live stream is I love this stuff called Thinking Putty. And you can purchase that on Amazon. I'm sure it's in other stores and stuff like that. You could get Play-Doh. You could get Silly Putty is another good one. Uh, I really like Thinking Putty because so there are small ones, but I, I'm a big fan of those big tins. So they have like a big amount of it because it keeps both our hands going. And oftentimes when I find my patients like struggling to make eye contact, looking away, I'll say to them, how does the putty feel? Is it, is it hard today? Because sometimes it takes a while to work it up, right? To get it really moving. What color is it? Does it have any sparkles in it? Because they're all different. So I ask them about it. So that can be something that can kind of help. Not only just like the hand movement can sometimes keep us grounded. Um, I'll have my patients slap on their arms. And so I'd have your therapist come up with some grounding techniques you can use at a distance. One of them is I always ask my patients like, okay, so look around the room. If they can't make eye contact, how many colors or how many things in the room have the color orange? How many things in your room have the color green? Tell me. Tell me about them. Or I'll have them even tell me about an object. Okay, pick one object. Um, do you have a plant in your room? And they'll say yes. Or a blanket? Yes. Tell me about that. How'd you get that? Where'd that come from? Stuff like that. Bringing you into the present, making it a non-emotionally charged conversation can sometimes help calm us, bring us back. Then the slapping of your arms. 
or rubbing on your neck or even like playing with your hair. Some of those things I'll instruct my patients to do. Um, Some of my patients wear like bracelets and I'll have them like push them into their wrist and I'll have them tell me about them. Um, There's a lot of different things that we can do. Uh, I would encourage you to to tell your therapist about this and come up with some things that can work and they can like like I'd say to mine like how many things and they you know you want them to instigate to start that so that you can you don't have to think about it so much you can just stay grounded um also sometimes having like a a smelling thing like of lavender like a little roller that's helped some of my clients there's a Mario something Badesco I think is how it said it's like I think it's eight dollars it's a little spritz of, it's like a face toner kind of thing, but it smells like lavender. They have a lavender one. It's like lavender and aloe. And um, that's helped one of my patients. She likes that one. And there's like a chamomile one, I think. Anyway, she sprays it around. And I'm like, tell me how that feels. Uh, tell me what that smell is. You know, and that smell, I think we got to use our senses, right? We got to pull ourselves back. And if after the session, you find yourself feeling like totally disconnected, it's you're really struggling to come back afterward because we don't really get, at, you know, when we're at home, it's not like the, Okay, I'm leaving the office. I'm back in the car. I get some quiet time to process and I'm home. We can struggle with that. And uh, cold or hot showers can help. And I want you to kind of like hunker over and let the water hit you, you know, on your head. And I want you to to think of, okay, I, I feel the water hitting me on my head. I feel the water on my shoulders. Okay, I feel the water trickling down my elbows. I feel it on my fingers. I feel it on my legs. I also can splash my feet. I feel my feet in the water. You know, the water's cold or hot or whatever. And I want you to think about it. I want you to feel it because the problem is with dissociation and just with trauma in general is our brain wants to disconnect from our body, right? It wants to pull us out because it's like, whoa, 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 this is too much. But we want to bring it back because it's safe now. It's okay to be in our body. I know it's uncomfortable, but it's safe. And so we have to kind of prove that we have to bring it back. We have to to remind it that, you know, it's okay to feel things and a shower can kind of help with that sometimes too. Okay, I hope that that helps. Let me make sure I answered this whole question. Some things to stay present. Yeah, there's a lot of things, but hopefully one of those works for you. Okay, question number nine. Let me get a little water. Question number nine says, Hey, Katie, I noticed this weird pattern about myself, which to me doesn't make any sense. Since I was in first grade, I always found myself looking for trustworthy adults outside of my family, mostly females. So I ended up feeling closer to certain teachers than my parents. Now that I'm an adult, I see that I'm still doing the same thing, only that it's not just teachers anymore. I wonder why this happens. I thought maybe I was having, a bo- having boundary issues back in my early childhood and, I, uh, and didn't get it until now. But as far as I can remember, I never felt unloved or anything like this. Do you have any advice? I hope this makes sense. This totally makes sense. And there are a couple of things. Um, we might not feel unloved even when we don't feel like our needs are getting met. Like the earlier question about emotional neglect, it wasn't something she realized until recently. So a lot of times, even though we felt, we can think good on paper, families and upbringings mean that we must have felt loved and good, right? I had a roof over my head. I had food in my belly. I had clothes on my back. I got to and from school. My mom helped me with my homework. Things that not everyone has. So we can look at that and think, hey, I had a pretty privileged life. I I feel pretty good. I had, you know, everything that I needed. But that doesn't actually mean that everything you needed was given. Even everybody, like for instance, everybody has different emotional needs. Like I might be more emotionally needy than let's say my husband Sean, right? I might need more words of affirmation, more rubs on the back, more more of my love language. If you don't know there's five love languages and let's see if I can pull these out right. Um 
acts of service, which is mine, um, shared activities, which is my second, uh, gifts, um, like when you buy somebody something, words of affirmation and physical touch. And so those are all ways that we express and sh- uh, we, we show and express and also receive love. Those are the ways that we do it. That's how we speak love to one another. And so just because you maybe didn't feel unloved growing up, maybe that meant that you didn't have like the strong female um, who would support and lead. You know, there might be something that you're missing. You might not. You're, maybe your parent bought you a bunch of gifts, but you didn't fucking care about gifts. All you wanted was to do something together or all you wanted was for them to um, do something nice for you or tell you how good you were. I don't know. Um, I'm very, I'm very curious about this. Like, you know, I, I don't always think that we know when we have needed something else, but this symptom of trying to find other adults outside of your family that you can trust mostly females and like attaching to them means that you weren't getting something from your family growing up. That doesn't mean your family is like a horrible shitty family. There's no judgment here. It's more about your needs and what you needed wasn't given. So we found it somewhere else Um, because we're so resourceful. Kudos to you. Pat on the back. But I think we do need to talk in therapy about this so that we can figure out where this comes from. Maybe why our attachment can be so this is all relating to attachment again i have videos about attachment styles being attached to your therapist um you know we can look for a, a male or female certain ages they always have to be older than us usually you know there's a lot of information we gather from who we're attached to but those videos should help you understand that um yeah and and i at the very like at the very least the to answer your question like i wonder why this happens i'm curious what you get out of it because that's your that's the answer to your why what is it that you're looking for? What is it about, like you could even go since teachers when you were younger, what was it about those particular teachers that made you want to spend more time with them, made you feel attached to them, made you really like them? What was it? Did they remind you of your mom? Because sometimes children do that when we're young, but this is happening when you're older too. So I don't really think that's it. But I have had patients who said that, oh, I felt attached to this because she reminded me of my mom and I didn't really like being away from my mom at school. And so it was the someone I felt I could trust, right? We feel like it's the same person. And that's very normal. Um, but the fact that it's happening as an adult tells me something was missing. You needed something else. Um, and there's nothing wrong with having needs and there's nothing wrong with you know them not being met. It's just we're, we were resourceful and we need to understand why. So yeah, those are kind of the questions I have. I do some, some thoughtful journaling, deep digging into yourself to answer honestly. Working with a therapist could really help. But even just thinking about this, like as you listen to this, did anything come up? I'm, I'm pretty sure you have some idea. Um, again, don't judge yourself about it. It's very common. Um, but yeah, we just need to be a little curious, learn a little more about ourselves. Okay. Question number 10. Hey, Katie, is it normal to not tell your therapist everything right away? 100% it's normal. I know you more. Uh, I know the more you tell your therapist, the better they can help you. But once you open up, will they be upset that you hid something important from them for so long? No, not at all. Um, thanks and hope you're having a good day. Thank you. I am. And I hope you are too. So 100% normal to not share everything with your therapist. It's a weird fucking thing, right? To tell a complete stranger all your deepest, darkest secrets. Totally normal. Do we get mad if we find out something that we know that earlier you either lied about or didn't tell us? No. If I got paid extra every time I found out a patient lied or told, didn't tell me something, I'd be like a gazillionaire. Um, it's more usually something that I say is like, Thank you for trusting me with that information or thank I'm glad you felt 
safe enough to share that. That's really helpful. Um, but a lot of the time I don't even acknowledge that it was like not addressed earlier or glossed over um, because I want them to feel free to share. And then maybe the next session I'll bring it up and be like, I was really proud of you for pushing through your comfort and sharing that with me. And, you know, and then I might even remind them if they're very, because I have some patients who get very squirrely about confidentiality. I'd be like, I want you to know that won't leave this room. And I, I'm glad that we have that information because that can help us, you know, move forward. Um, so yeah, it's, it's very normal. We don't get mad at all. Uh, yeah, it's just something that always happens. You guys, I think it's just because therapy is such a strange, a strange situation, right? Like I tell my therapist things I don't really tell anybody else. And that's just how it is. Um, because it's so funny how we have this like relationship running with ourselves where we like, I don't even know how to explain it. You guys know what I mean though. I'll do my best. It's like when you're in your head and you're thinking about situations that you've, th- things you've done in life, things you're embarrassed about, things you're filled with shame about, because we all have it. Um, situations we felt like we were just a jackass or things we wish we could take back. Um, and we have this conversation with ourselves about it over the years so much so that we think it's so horrible that, oh my God, like no one will understand. I can't tell anybody because thank God I'm the only one that knows about this. Oh, it's too much. Or like, you know, we, the, we worry so much about what other people will think and the judgment that will come along with it that we, even when we're in therapy, whether it's supposed to be free of that, we still, it's not like we can just snap out of that automatic response to protect ourselves it's all self-preservation right we can't just snap out of it and share it with a therapist and anyway it's just a it's just funny lately when i've been like doing my own journaling and thinking i'm like it's so funny how we like live in this own little world in our head even though if we're social and out in the world it has nothing to do with that it's just like we live in this like world where we tell ourselves things about certain stories and and that's why we need to make sure that conversation's a positive one we need to that's why we need to utilize therapy and share when we can feel safe to share so that we realize that we're not crazy or alone and somebody else is weighing in on that conversation and not letting us just get away with, you know, making ourselves feel worse and more shame filled and more embarrassed. Anyway, I'm rambling. Just know that it's normal and it always takes time and know they're not going to be mad. Don't worry. Okay. Final question. Question number 11. Hi, Katie. Are nightmares after therapy normal? When I talk with my therapist about things that remind me of situations from my childhood, it happened to be abusive. For the next few days, I have nightmares about these memories. So normal. Is there something I can do about it? It's scary. And every time our conversation around this topic starts, I know I'm going to have to quote unquote pay for it later that night. Yes. Okay. So when when it comes to trauma therapy, nightmares are very normal after therapy. When we're uncovering things that are painful and hurtful and just shame-filled, embarrassed, all that stuff, we know trauma is so complicated, you guys, right? There's so many emotions tangled up in it. It's very common to have nightmares. The nightmares can be kind of a form of a flashback. Some people will have even panic attacks in their sleep. Um, completely normal. So I want you to just know it's normal, but that doesn't mean that we have to keep doing it. Okay. And so there's a couple of things. And someone left a comment that's kind of in line with what I have patients do. And I love this. This is why I love our community, people sharing tips and tools. It's you guys are fucking awesome. So the number one thing that I do in my sessions is when I am going to talk about something that is a little bit more um of a triggering thing. It could be a memory. It could even just be like a person, right? Um, or an upcoming situation that I know is going to be triggering and we're trying to prepare. When anything about that, that triggers a traumatic, uh, a PTSD-like response, I'm going to give more time towards the end of the session to calm down and kind of change the subject. 
And I do that so that this kind of thing doesn't happen and so that my patients don't uh, aren't exhausted, don't leave crying or don't get in their car feeling still dysregulated. I want to try to calm as much as possible, right? It's never, it's not 100% perfect, but you can ask your therapist to give you more time at the end of those sessions, like an extra five, 10 minutes. Um, I usually try to wrap things up in like a five, 10 minute window. So for these, I start trying to move things towards wrap up around like 15 minutes, uh, 20 minutes sometimes if it's real hard. Um, but I realize that's a lot of your session. I'm just giving you some ideas. So starting that is a good option. The second thing and something that someone uh, mentioned in the comments, which I love, and this is something that Alexa has taught me and told me about is rewriting the story. Um, so this actually works with children too. When children are going through like a sleep regression, you have, if they wake up, you have them read this little story about sleep and they go back to sleep. Anyway, um, it kind of works for the same reason. But if we can write out these uh, memories with a different happy ending, right? So instead of the ending being like, I got hurt or abused or something horrible happened, right? I want you to write it out and then, you know, make it happy. So instead of, let's say our mom abusing us, it's like, then mom came home and she was super friendly because she had a good day at work. We made cookies together. We watched some TV and I fell asleep. So we can, we rewrite it. You have the right to rewrite it. Rewrite it into something happy. And I want this written down because I don't want you having backlit things when you maybe wake up or right before you go to bed. And so I want you to read yourself that bedtime story and then put yourself to sleep. And I know that sounds silly and you're like, wow, that's so childish. No, it helps us instead of letting our brain run in the trauma and have more flashback uh, nightmares, we can have these happy dreams. Okay. I know it's weird. Just give it a try. It's work. It doesn't work hundred percent, but it works a lot of the time. And then another thing that I have my patients do is I have them have a ritual around bedtime that's very soothing and affirming and all positive stuff. So I want them to, I usually have them have a few photos of good, supportive, loving people in their life. I want you to look at those photos. I want you to look them in the eye. If it's an animal, I want you to look at the photo of the animal or pet the animal if they're around. I want you to maybe wash, I want you to do some self-care. So I want you to wash your face and brush your teeth. And I want you to do some stretches and rub on your hands. I want you to tell yourself a couple of nice things, like two to five nice things about yourself, things that you love about your day. And then I want you to imagine the future. I want you to plan for tomorrow. What am I looking forward to tomorrow? Um, which I know sounds silly. And then it's like, what could I dream tonight that would help prepare me for tomorrow? And then I'll have people try to create the dream while you're falling asleep. That sometimes works too. So those are just some of those tips. Um, because yes, unfortunately, nightmares happen after we do trauma work. It's like our brain is trying to process it and and I get it. It's doing the best it can, it can, but sometimes that's fucking horrible. And it's like almost re-traumatizing because we're like in that situation again. And so it can be really hard, but try out some of those techniques. If you're out there and you have other, um, you know, things that are helpful for you. Oh, also, I know with one of my patients, uh, weighted blankets helped with another. It made them worse. So, you know, maybe just try adding a few extra blankets to your bed if, if it won't overheat you um, and see if that helps or hurts. I don't know, because weighted blankets can be quite an investment. I don't want you to get it and then it be, make it worse for you because everybody's different. Um, and then some soothing music too has, can sometimes help. But yeah, give those things a try. Let me know. I hope that that helps. And that's all we have for today. Those were our 11 questions. That flew by. Am I right? Am I right? Um, thank you so much for listening and watching. I hope this was helpful. Um, yeah. I just, this podcast is really cool. I like having longer form conversations and I hope you guys do too. I know it's like a totally new thing. This is episode 21, I think, if my little notes are correct as I keep your all your questions in here. Um, but yeah, I look forward to talking to you guys every week and I hope that you enjoy it as well. Feel free to share it with someone that you think it might help. Um, yeah, 
and I will see you next time. Bye. You can ask her why breakups suck or why you've hit a plateau. Inquire all those questions you've always wanted to know.